And all God's people said, Amen. We're looking to Beatitudes. This Sunday has brought us to the eighth verse of the fifth chapter of Matthew. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Becky Pippert describes a day in a course that she was taking at Harvard University. It was in the Department of Psychology and it was a lecture on psychodynamic psychotherapy, whatever that is. Let me say at the outset, we have several psychotherapists in the church and uh, sometimes when you have an adjective, it's kind of a slice and a take and a particular... Uh, particular subset of a field which has its own peculiarities about it, so it's important to say this was a lecture in psychodynamic psychotherapy, and Pippert herself says this was a particularly fascinating lecture, but at the end she raised her hand and she said, uh, thanks very much, uh, uh, Professor, uh, but could you tell me at the end of the session, after you've helped your client understand their feelings, how would you help them actually forgive their mother? And this particular lecturer on that day said, well, I'd say to my client, good luck. And then he added, if you're looking for a change of heart, you've come to the wrong department. The Bible says the kingdom of God is the department about changed hearts. In God's kingdom, Jesus' lordship occupies a sovereignty over every aspect of our lives and of ourselves. Every part of our character is subject to being transformed. We've been seeing that the Beatitudes are a kind of map for that kind of transformation, and this morning has brought us to consideration of the heart. The heart's a muscle. And, of course, in our culture, it's identified with romantic love. But in the biblical world, it's the seat of personality. It's the center of the collection of all of our feelings, what moves and makes a life dynamic. This means our thoughts and our feelings and our desires in the kingdom of God are to be directed and driven by Christ. Some of us in the room, myself included, gave our lives to Christ at a fairly young age, and I think I was inhabited by Christ. God was a reality in my life because of my church and my parents even before that. So in a real sense, I have grown into myself. I have grown up not so much with new desires as the desires of my heart and the desires of the Christ I'd given to, but also being nurtured by the desires of the old man that had been defeated. But they're somewhat side by side. I've learned them together. This particular text in focusing on the heart says that the matters of the heart are absolutely crucial to Jesus Christ. From the heart, the center of our personhoods and personalities issue almost all forms of life. And the Bible makes this great turn from outside in to inside out. I could quote scripture after scripture. Let's just settle with one, First Samuel. 
Humanity looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesus announces that things of the faith are an inside-out affair. It's the difference between religion and regeneration. Religion says on the basis of an outward system of merits, I will be saved. Regeneration says on the basis of an inward gift of God I will be saved. Religion says I will work hard outwardly. And Christian regeneration says I will release all of my works as a kind of set of filthy rags and accept freely and graciously and generously the work of Christ on my behalf. Jesus saves his strongest condemnation for those who are working outside in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and legalists. You are like, and then he has two powerful images, cups that are clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. Or even more powerfully, you are like whited sepulchers, graves, which have been painted over with whitewash, which are literally clean appearing on the outside, but, and here's the image, dead on the inside. At our faculty retreat, my colleague Tim Riarda in New Testament gave a wonderful series on three different 30-minute devotionals over our time together from the book of Revelation, all of them fabulous. He explored images, and his middle devotional was exploring the image of what what it means to be wrapped in a white robe. That's important to the book of Revelation. And he says there are many different ways to go with it, but the most important thing, without working out all the details, is that the disciples of Jesus are to be wrapped in a white robe. It's a sign of inside-out cleanness and purity. And then he asked in his application, what would that mean for our living? If at our desks, at our work, at our sleep, and our quiet times and our private moments, we pictured ourselves as we are to, clothed in a white robe, how would our conduct towards our work, how would our conduct towards others be different? Jesus insists on this inside-out logic. We are to be have inside-out hearts. Uh, the logic of this, strikingly, is that Jesus didn't come so much to reform and redeem society as he did to redeem and reform individuals. He wouldn't be satisfied if there were a culture in which Imagine the fact there were no adultery. That would be something, but not much. He came to redeem hearts in which there was not lust, in which hearts were rightly comported and rightly directed and rightly driven by the will of God. This is a matter of the heart. But, of course, the text goes on and it gives a particular dimension in this beatitude, this blessing. Blessed are those hearts which are pure. Purity of heart is apparently important. And purity is defined as that which is undefiled, that which is clean, that which is single-focused, that which doesn't have contaminants in it. 
Soren Kierkegaard said helpfully, I think, purity of heart is to will one thing, to be singular, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And the call to worship I had us read together, it had to do with clean hands and a pure heart, but then it defined that in terms of not speaking deceitfully. We had trouble with that, didn't we? We had trouble with the leadership on that. But right before, I think the critical part is we don't give our hearts to idols. Idols are false gods. Idols are things that we inappropriately take security in. Idols are things that we inappropriately put in God's place in our life, inappropriately put first in our life. So to have a pure heart, to will one thing, to have singularity of focus, to not be contaminated by that which is impure, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength, to put first things first, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It is purity of heart. C.S. Lewis says Christianity isn't about making nicer people, but new people. That means we're not to become better so much, but new. Someone, I don't know where I got this, but said it means that we're not to become faster caterpillars, but butterflies. Newness, singleness of purpose, Seeking first the kingdom of God and not having divided hearts, that would be impurity. There is, of course, also a moral dimension to this. Again, at our faculty retreat, it was a fairly eventful faculty retreat. Our president said that he thought that the Supreme Court decision at the beginning of the summer, and I agree with him, was a new tipping point that we for a long time, all of my adult life, have been in a culture which increasingly was less and less informed by the Judeo-Christian tradition. But this summer now there was a decision which had a new turn. And its consequence, its import, is not just that we as a society should be as we should, uh, free as citizens to pursue decisions that we want to make, But there is now a decision which has been made that informs what a certain commendation of life should be, what it looks like. And the church now needs to prepare herself for living in a culture we've been getting used to, but now which we need to understand will bring ministry situations and problems that we have not anticipated in the past, October 3rd. A Saturday, there's going to be a day-long seminar at the seminary many of you might be interested in being part of. Purity of heart is the mandate of the kingdom of God. Then there's a promise to this great mandate. It is, what a promise to see God, that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Holiness is being connected to vision, sacredness to see. Of course, the comportment of our hearts, the comportment of our lives are connected to what we know and what we see. 
Uh, one of my favorite plays of all time is The Miracle Worker in it. And Sullivan goes through a painstaking process of teaching the young, deaf, blind Helen Keller language and to speak. At the opening of one particularly wonderful production I saw, the director had the audience sit in darkness for long minutes. Eventually there was a sound of breathing, but you know when minutes stretch out with little to fill it, it can feel like hours. And that was the point, like visiting Alcatraz. This is what life in total visual darkness feels like, looks like. I guess because of my visit to the Charles Schultz Museum at the beginning of the summer, I've been going through a peanuts phase again. I uh, won't continue to impose these on you, but Charles Schultz in one of his comic strips showed Snoopy and uh, his bird friend Woodstock sitting on top of Snoopy's doghouse. And Snoopy says, Woodstock has never seen a violin or a fire truck or a candy store. He's never heard an opera or a symphony. He's never seen a movie or a play. On the other hand, he's seen the sky, the clouds, the ground, the sun, the rain, the moon, the stars, a cat, and several worms. He concluded, Woodstock feels that he's led a very full life. Obviously, the kind of natural import of that is that we spend our days seeing and not seeing much. The text means a lot more than that. Maybe it doesn't mean this at all, but let me spend just a moment on it anyway. Helen Keller, who is blind and deaf since she was 18 months old, asked a friend once uh, what she had seen when she returned from a walk in the woods. And the friend said, nothing in particular. And then Keller wrote, the seeing see little. Uh, in her book, uh, Three Days to See, that's what this is taken from, she describes what she sees in a walk in the woods. And I'm paraphrasing right now. I'm going to quote word for word in a moment. Through her touch alone, she felt the delicate symmetry of a leaf, the smooth skin of a silver birch, the rough shaggy bark of a pine, the velvety texture of a flower, the cool waters of a brook, the lush carpet of pine needles, the quiver of a bird as she held a small tree, and so much more. All of these were part of what she spoke of in kind of a panorama of the wonders of nature which she was able to see through her other sentences. She says, we take our sense of vision for granted and it's a terrible sin. And then let me quote her exactly. She challenges those who are cited this way. She says, I am blind can give one hint to those who see. Use your eyes as if tomorrow you would be stricken blind. And the same method can apply to the other senses. Hear the music of voices, the song of a bird, the mighty strings of an orchestra, as if you would be stricken deaf tomorrow. 
touch each object you want to touch as if tomorrow your tactile sense would fail. Smell the perfume of flowers, taste with relish each morsel as, as if tomorrow you could never smell and taste again. Make the most of every sense. Glory in all the facets and pleasures of beauty. Now that's a kind of natural and perhaps helpful reading of blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Treasure, be aware, use your faculties. Elizabeth Barrett Browning in one step, one bridge which makes this insight more spiritual writes, earth's crammed with heaven. And every common bush afire with God. And then she adds, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. How do we see the glory of God? The text says through the purity of heart. And seeing God means enjoying his presence, being with him. John Piper helpfully expands this in three ways, and I want to borrow his insights there. That seeing God spiritually means being, first of all, admitted into his presence. When we ask for an appointment with our doctor, we don't want to see his picture. We want an appointment with him, time with him. We want time in his presence. So to see God, to see him, I want to see my doctor, means time in his presence. Secondly, Piper suggests is being awestruck by the glory of God. Job says, I have heard of you, but now I have seen you face to face. In uh, this life, in this time, most of our experience of God is mediated through, as it should be, providence and experience and history and his word, and these are helpful safeguards and helpful tracks into his presence. But there are times now, and there will be times in the future, which we are overwhelmed directly with the glory of his presence. One, I've shared this with you before, but without even a close second, the most helpful part of the material of experiencing God um, for me that we went through as a church two weeks ago was the exercise of taking a walk with God. I try to repeat that 30 minutes during a day and walking and talking and listening to him. Brother Lawrence was a medieval monk who had has a wonderful devotional classics with the great title, Practicing the Presence of God. And I could summarize the thesis of that book by saying sometimes we get too highfalutin about too many things. How do we give our lives to God? Give your life to God. How do we practice the presence of God? Practice the presence of God. Talk to him. Be with him. Refer your life to him in things large and small. When washing the dishes, when walking in the woods, take your heart, your concerns, your life throughout your moment, throughout your day, large and small. Sometimes I'm helped most by small. It's not a gargantuan prayer. It's not a two-hour prayer, important as those can be. But it's this moment and this time and this concern. Practice the presence of God. We approach that characteristically through God's word and should and through his providence. But in addition to being admitted into his presence, we also, when we see him, are gained a direct access which strikes us with awe 
at his glory, the beauty of his holiness. And then thirdly, uh, Piper focused on a wonderful little phrase, largely from the Old Testament, don't take your face away from me. It is a repeated cry, don't hide yourself from me, don't take your face from me. And what is meant by that, largely, is God's graciousness. If, God's hi- if God hides his face from us, he hides his gracious comportment towards us from him. That we have access to the Father. We see the Father when we see and understand his graciousness to us. Don't hide your face from me. Because if you hide your face from me, I'm doomed. If you show your face to me in its graciousness, in its fullness, in its lordship, I am and I am always help. Blessed are the pure in heart. Single-focused and morally unadulterated because they will see God and in so doing be ushered into his presence, delight in his glory, and be helped by his grace. That by God's grace is our present and will be increasingly our future. Living in a holy God, we do desire to seek you truly and seek you first with all our hearts and souls and strength, which is to say with all our hearts, all that we have and all that we are. We cannot do that apart from and without your goodness and grace. Hide not your face from us, but let us see you in Jesus' name.